Welcome back to Two Rivers, Two Takes, everyone. I'm Daryl. And I'm Philip. We're here with episode three coverage of the Wheel of Time TV series. So this is the third episode that they fed out on the same day. So everything that we have been talking about all came out on November 19th. And this is how they really wanted to hook us in. So the first two episodes were building up to this because they think that this episode is the one that will make us care enough about this to watch it for the rest of the season. Yes, and we get one of our missing pieces from our traveling group in this episode, which is very exciting. We get Tom Marilyn. Yeah, but first we crash right into the resolution of how episode two left off. And crash is a great word because Matt and Rand crashed out of a wall and Perrin and Egwene crashed slash dove into the river as they were fleeing Shadar Logoth from the evil that was trying to consume them. And even before then, before the credits even roll, we see what happens to Nynaeve in the midst of that battle in the Two Rivers. Yes, she showed up with a knife to Lan's throat at the end of the last episode, leaving everyone to ask, how did she survive? And we see as she is dragged away by a Trolloc, who then finds an injured Trolloc, and at first you're like, oh, it's so nice, it's going to help its friend, and then it eats its friend. It's true. It plays into this idea that Trollocs are sort of inherently lazy and always hungry, and so it saw its wounded friend as a tasty meal. Because honestly, up above the Blight, that's probably all that they had to eat was each other. And so... He went for the familiar food, snacked away. It seemed very juicy, perhaps might be a word yeah. to describe it. <laughs> um, there was definitely some sounds. Maybe if people are into ASMR, maybe they could make that as a special Wheel of Time ASMR track where it's just some gushy sounds. Fun fact, if you do like AMSR... At the end of one of the short track episodes, when they had lower decks from different ships, they had lower decks of a Borg cube. So there's an hour of AMSR sounds. It's very from, soothing. From the Borg. Yes, just some ship sounds. Um, but we get Nenave uh, running for her life. She gets to the sacred pool. What makes it sacred, we still don't know. But we, what we do know is Nenave is super smart, works with what she's got, outsmarts this Trolloc, and uses its own knife against it to survive. Is this pool even sacred anymore? I mean, a Trolloc just died in it, and we know that they're smelly and filthy, so I don't think there's any coming back for this cave. No, they're going to need like a lot of Clorox if they want to purify it, get some pool shock, throw that in there, and maybe after it clears out. Yeah, they maybe just find a new pool. Um, Rand pulling his best Leo DiCaprio from Titanic, where he's just screaming some names out. But instead of screaming out for Rose, he's screaming out for Egwene. And we're back to the back and forth. Now he really loves Egwene and misses her and is shouting. And Matt's like, what are you doing, you fool? You are screaming, and we are being pursued by things. Thank you, Matt, for injecting some common sense into this situation. We get this weird 
dynamic, as you say, where Rand is going to go where Egwene is, even though he was so opposed to going to Tar Valen in the previous episode. But since she's there, it's like he's back in puppy dog eye mode. Yeah, I don't know. And we cut to Egwene and Perrin being together. And she sort of expresses the same thing this episode, that she's going to go where Rand goes. And it just causes me to throw my hands up and be like, this... She's better than that. She is, and it's injecting a romantic angle into the show. And now that I'm thinking more about it, it it was really missing in the books. Like, it doesn't need to rely on that sort of storyline to move it forward. And I think it's a deliberate move by the writers here to have a different sort of storyline for people to be attracted to. It, in the books, was a will-they-won't-they? I don't know. I feel the funny ways about her. But then, as they begin to make their decisions and sort of become who they'll be, they recognize in each other that they're not the same people that they were, and they're able to acknowledge that and move on in sort of a nice, clean fashion. Like... Rand and Egwene, by the end of the third book, know that their lives are taking them in different directions, and they respect that. And but I sort of want that here, but this, any progress we make, it's like one step forward and two steps back. And it's brought up constantly. I mean, this is the third episode we've talked about it in both of our previous episodes, where it, this romantic wink is something that is being relied upon as a storytelling device. And... It is, I think it's definitely trying to bring in a demographic that really enjoys that and needs that in what they view. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. I watch plenty of shows where you, uh, it's based around romantic entanglements and things like that. Um, here, I don't know. We have a lot going on. I don't know if we need it in this show. Right. And I feel like it'd almost be better for the characters to be able to have those moments of acknowledging the path the other person is on and respecting that, which, frankly, our world sort of needs that sort of respect for boundaries. Yeah. Like, people need to recognize that more as an honest and valid thing. So, hopefully it'll come back later and we'll get that resolution and we'll get that, I know your life is taking you in a different path. I wish you the best, like... Yeah. As your friend... I respect your decision. And yeah. I think you're wonderful still. Uh, but Egwene uses the power to light a fire. Yeah, it's a great moment with Perrin where he's like trying his hardest to get his dagger and flint to light a little flame. And Egwene sees how much he's struggling. He cut his thumb already on it. And so she tries her method to start a fire. Was it her? Was it him? We don't know. It's pretty awesome that she has learned enough to be able to do that and it sort of sets up oh i'm learning so much and then when she learns how much she needs to learn later on it's it's pretty great um of all the different applications the different skills that come with the power it's more than just simply trying to light a campfire but for her second go at it good for her yeah she did phenomenal and she wasn't being guided by Moraine, and we didn't see any training beyond that one night that they were together. Right. She has She's a quick study, and that is one of the hallmarks of her character. Um, between her and Nynaeve, 
they only need to see something done once and they're able to replicate it. And so this was, I thought, wonderful for her. She's advancing. She's being able to help her friend. And I always, at first I was confused by the pairings, but I'm really glad that it's her and Perrin. I think that he is methodical enough, respectful enough, and to trust her opinions, and she does the same for him, and it's they work well together. So Moraine is not doing well, and I think that's an understatement. They're, she She's a real pale, corpsey-looking broad laying on some rocks. Some very mossy rocks. It, it's yeah. very beautiful, um, but it is not beautiful in her wound. And Dr. Um, Pimple Popper, Nynaeve herself decides to show uh, her skills with herbs. So she makes a poultice and she's like, yeah, hey, don't you feel what she feels? Because this isn't going to feel great. And she um, sort of expresses the wound to get what's building up out. And it's real gross looking. It is. And she's very no-nonsense about it. She gets the job done. She's very professional, even though she's only been wisdom for a few years probably built up from people saying, oh, you're too young to be a wisdom. So she has to be that good and to have that level of skill. I was sort of hoping that in her, even though she's helping Moraine, her rage at Moraine for what she sees as absconding with her villagers would have allowed her to channel some and use her healing, capital H. (laughs) But she works her herbs she sort of shows it off to Lan and instead of getting a little bit more backstory of my dad taught me how to track I'm that's how I'm so good at it we know that that can't be a thing because we know now that she was raised by the previous wisdom in the village and so she recognizes that she doesn't have to answer to Lan she doesn't have to answer his questions he can ask all he wants but she doesn't have to answer. And something we both sort of cringed at at the beginning of this episode is she asked, where are my friends? And the way that the wisdom is structured, she she's responsible for them. I don't think that she would have asked, where are my friends? No, the wisdom is such a leadership position set apart from the villagers that they aren't her friends. They're more of her wards, her villagers, her people. Yeah, like, her charges. Her, yes. She, even though she's connected to them, she's still removed from them. And I thought they had built that up from Egg explained to Matt that she was going to become an apprentice, and, that, and he was like, oh, that's a lonely life. Yeah. It created that sort of separation, and so for her to be like, where are my friends... She wasn't particularly friendly with them. Yeah. And even in the books, she was more liable to stare down Matt and thump him over the head for whatever prank he had just done um, versus ever calling him a friend. Perrin, we're getting this undercurrent of wolves, and he has a nightmare where you can see the dark one in the background with his fiery eyes, but he finds his wife's zombie corpse being eaten by a wolf and this leads into a wolf chase through a thicket that is mysteriously smoky it is so smoky and it's a good it's a decent plot device like a yes. comments on it even to say like well 
lose our way. So clearly these wolves are helping again. They're pushing Perrin and Egwene through the fog in the direction that they need to go, where they'll find some wagon tracks. And these wolves are clearly hounding Perrin, har har, <laughs> and helping in ways that he doesn't seem to recognize as help, but it definitely is. And for people who've read the books and know a little bit about Wolf Brothers, like, they are helping. He just doesn't have the guidance to recognize it yet. We catch up with Rand and Matt finding a village. Yeah, and you know where they're not? They're not on a boat, (laughs) which was part of... um, the books they had escaped the city get on a boat that brings them down to Whitebridge where they would see if a little bit more of age of one age of legends type things the artifacts this, like yes. the large statues carved into the banks Whitebridge itself um, but no they wander into this town and it's a dirty little village I was having feelings about it and then when you pointed out that it's a TV series. It doesn't have a whole lot of time. And so it's an amalgamation of Fairlin, which was the mining town to the north of the two rivers, plus Four Kings. And so there's some homage to that. Four Kings is is the name of the inn. But to get the plot to advance at TV speed, they had to combine all these things together. Yeah, and we see that there is a corpse in a cage. Matt is really eyeing up this crystal, so um, maybe he's like me, and he has some crystals at his bedside to help out with life. Um, But this is another sort of Matt wants to loot the corpse sort of moment. Um, Very Elder Scrolls. And they roll into the inn, in this town and they see a glee man who is not a glee man because he sings a real slow depressing song it's something that we mentioned in our recap of the first episode where it feels very dark and it's sort of like the manifestation of where we are culturally where you can't just have happy-go-lucky things it has to be dark and gritty and have an edge and so of all the things that they could have given that gritty edge to, I was actually kind of disappointed in what they did to Tom Marilyn. Because in the books, he has these, like, he's iconic. He has these big mustaches that he blows out in frustration. He constantly talks up how good he is. He can do all these songs and verses. He knows all the songs. He can do them in high chant. Not like any other tavern went singing a song. And it's all about showmanship for him. Like, he knows how good he is. He tries to build up a crowd worthy of his performance before he actually expends the energy to perform. Yeah. And instead, we get this sort of drab dude without mustaches. With a regular guitar. He has his acoustic with him. No flute, no harp, no cloak full of patches that flutters in the breeze to announce that he's a gleeman. Like... Great, you've got a colorful lining in your drabby brown coat. Like, that needs to be reversible. Like, please tell me it's a reversible coat so that when he goes into a village, he shouldn't have to explain that he's a gleeman. It should be evident by 
the fluttering colors of his cloak. Um, yeah, it's... I want to see if they're going to make his character more joyful, because nothing we see in this episode expresses that to me. No, and it's something that's dark and gritty that doesn't have to be dark and gritty. Like, if you came from a high court bard situation and now you're traveling gleeman like there's no sense of like what what a pbs special would call giving him airs Mm. like that's part of that character but it's absent here he's just gritty and he is gritty he even pickpockets matt and doesn't give the money back he's like that's my tip and i'll keep the rest of it because i just gave you a life lesson rude yeah um so Egwene and Perrin are driven to the wagon tracks they decide to follow them into some more mist and then we cut away from them again um because we were really focused on what's happening with Matt and Rand right now. yeah they got a lot of airtime this episode um so they get a room together and the innkeeper is like, oh, well, it's soundproof in here, so you can have some slap and tickle. And I thought it was good that they included the possibility of a gay relationship. Right, because that's absent in the books until you get towards the end. And when you do get it, then it falls into the trope of, oh, he died. So it was fun that it was referenced here, and it's normalized. It's, right. It's it, very conversational. It's Rand plays it off as... Uh, har har, if I wanted a guy, I could do a whole lot better. Yeah. It wasn't a no homo moment. Which thankfully. Is, yeah. That would have, I feel, driven us up the wall as yeah. two gay guys. Yeah. Um, oh, Egwene and Perrin, they're talking with these traveling folk. Um, yes, there's no Elias, which is unfortunate. Um, so Elias is a character that they encounter first, and he sort of knows the culture of the traveling people. So he's able to sort of smooth their transition to being part of this camp. He becomes a guide for the two of them in both helping Perrin with his wolf brotherness, because Elias is a full wolf brother. He understands the wolves, how to communicate, what the dreams are. And instead, um, we don't get that, and we get at least a good way for them to find the Tuatha on. Like, they used their heads when they found the wagon tracks. Perrin's like, we should be cautious, we could stay a little bit back until we know who they are. He's using his head, which is great, because they know that not everyone that they meet will be helpful, as evidenced by their interactions with the White Cloaks in the previous episode. Lan leaves Moraine and Nynaeve together to go find help. Risky move on his part, because Nynaeve is pissed. Yeah, so um, he's off on a little mini-adventure, a side quest, if you will, to find some help. And um, and just rides away. Yep, just rides away for a while. Then he sees some tents, and we are left hanging. Um, we cut back to the Tuatha An and Perrin and Egrain, and... This is another casualty, I think, of the dark and grittiness that doesn't have to be dark and gritty. The traveling people, the tinkers, are supposed to have these bright, vibrant, very often clashing colors and patterns, 
the books make it sound like if you look at them too long, you'll get a headache because nothing matches. Everything clashes. Yeah. It's like bright, bright oranges, purples, pinks, yellows. And instead, we get people who don't have that. It's They're more subdued. Like, Loxana Troy from Star Trek, our favorite character, <laughs> is so flamboyant, so gregarious, and her outfits reflect that. And then you see her in an episode in just a plain brown dress, and you know that something is wrong. And instead of getting the full Waxana, we're getting the subdued version of these outfits. And... Yeah, it wasn't as fun and spunky as I was hoping that we would see from them. And what I, the aspect I did like is that they want to take care of them. And they're yes. like, you know, when you're with us, you're one of us. So it sharing our food sharing our safety which is on brand and in that respect they did a really good job of translating the tinkers onto the screen from the page they're very welcoming they have their big dogs but those big dogs are just to bark and to be loud they're not attack dogs at all and the traveling people i'm hoping that we learn shortly that they follow the way of the leaf which is a total pacifism worldview yeah, they're basically the hippies of this world. They are not interested in war. They don't want to have any negative vibes. Well, it's not necessarily vibes. Like, it's anathema for them to even pick up a sword or use anything as a weapon. The Way of the Leaf does not allow for any sort of self-defense in that way. Hmm. They are the tree trunk that dulls the axe. The trunk doesn't fight back against it. The axe just wears itself out. And so it's a hard life where you can't defend yourself in any way. The only defense that they have is their wagons and to run. Yeah. If there's something that happens. Um, and that's... But we don't, we're missing that sort of detail yet. I'm hoping because the episode ends with Perrin and Egwene still there, mm -hmm. that in the next episode we do get that added layer. So maybe it's just like a slow intro instead of just overwhelming us with the details. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, and that's really the last we see of them for this episode. So they're uh, eating really well. Um, yes. <laughs> and uh, we transition to, I think at this point, we see Matt and Tom cutting down this body from the cage and yes. giving it a burial. They get some detail, like Tom explains who the ale are, that you only need to be worried about them if you can't see their face. They won't, that's when they're ready, ready to, to kill. kill. Yeah. Um, but that they're warriors and that he was clearly caught unawares if he was captured by this village. And he's, Tom seems very nonplussed by the whole loot the body situation. Yeah, he's like, uh, do what you will, but you're going to help me bury him. Yeah, so there's a, a little spark of common decency in there where they lay this body to rest. Meanwhile, Rand has been having a very illuminating conversation with the innkeeper, who is revealed to be a dark friend, or fiend. <laughs> I'm just going to say dark fiend, because they are not good people. They have sold their souls to the dark one, and are committed to chaos and harm with no respect for other people so this dark fiend had been given orders to find and capture the folks in the two rivers and the fact that she had found two of them and was had captured one 
Maybe not the best move to be in the room with him mm. as she locks him in. Yeah. Because, girl, how are you going to get out? Yeah. But in the books, this is fairly true to form. Matt and Rand had gotten cornered, and it becomes the first use of the power by one of them in the books. We don't necessarily get that. Instead, we get a miraculous save by Tom and his knives, which is true to form in the books. Yeah. So that was a good touch. Yeah, so uh, Tom always has literally some tricks up his sleeve uh, in the form of daggers and knives that he can toss very well. And he uses that to great effect through her throat. Yes. And maybe this is a good point where Matt begins to learn from Tom how to do that. He will eventually pick up on knives as his best defense in his charm offensive. Hmm. And so that tracks and works out well. So that's a, that was a good moment. Um, one of the things that we didn't see much common sense applied to was they didn't go back for their stuff. Who, if Rand shows up in a coat when he clearly left the coat at the inn, when they were like, we gotta go. Like, either show him going back and having some sense to get his coat and his bow, or he can't wear it for the rest of the trip and has to go find a new cloak to keep warm. Well, this sort of goes along with what we said in the first episode of the season where they just peace out from the two rivers. We don't see them... Provisioning. Yeah, and especially since Rand lived out on a farm, that would have been even more for him to go back to his house to get stuff. We, We don't know how he has his stuff. It might just be some extras that were in the village that he took along with him. But as they're running away and we're like, dude, get your coat, get your bow. Yeah. Especially because for a two rivers person to not be without a bow is odd. Like their archery is pretty top notch. Hard, hard. <laughs> um, and so like for other characters to have such great common sense and then for this moment to not was a little bit rough um but who knows it may make sense with having to leave the town after tom just killed the innkeeper yeah that's true and the townsfolk really didn't bat an eye when she was chasing rand around they're just like oh okay well yeah as if that happened every day so um they obviously see a lot of shady stuff happening in this village and are nonplussed by it. Yes. Which makes you wonder, like, is that the whole village that is dark fiends or are they just certain people? We see later on throughout the books that there isn't really a whole town of them, except in one particular case, north of the Blight. Mm. But it's always just like individuals and for one to reveal themselves was a bold choice. Yeah. We end this episode with the payoff to Land Side Quest, where he has found some help and it's other eyes to die. And this is a curious moment for us because we saw that there are borders in front of this procession. We get Leandrin. Ugh. Ugh. Um, She's the one from the first episode that yes. was chasing down this dude who could channel. And, and she blocked a whole, like, mountain pass crevasse thing. Like, she caved it in, like, that road is no longer usable, which is, I feel, not helpful. But she 
has a very narrow view of the world and other people in it. She's like the grown-up Nellie Olson from Little House on the Prairie, where she just instantly inspires dislike from the viewer. You, I don't know if anyone would like this character from what they've seen of her, and we haven't seen a whole lot. We just get a vibe from her. And it matches the books, and to that, her credit, she does a great job, and the costuming folks do a great job. She still has her little braids. She still has her little, like, I don't know why they always use rosebud mouth as a descriptor in the books, because that seems like there are better words. But she still has her bold red lip. Yeah. And that haughtiness that sort of most reds have, which is why they're not really liked in the tower. So it was pretty surprising to see warders. It was really surprising to see greens, because we know that red... ASDI don't have warders. Greens are the only ones that'll have more than one, possibly married to more than one. And from the trailers, we know that we're going to get more info on the politics of the Ajas. Mm-hmm. But for there to be greens to be helping reds, like they are, greens and blues are much more closely aligned in their involvement in the world, and they're usually at odds with the reds. And when we saw that opening scene of the series where they're galloping after this guy there are only reds in that scene there were no other ajas so they somehow picked up some more sisters along the way after they have this dude thrown into a cage i think it's different the dude was just like some guy who could channel but this in the cage is logain who had proclaimed himself as the dragon reborn and the Red saw as a false dragon. And since they have a bit of a different protocol with someone claiming to be the dragon, they have to take that person to the tower, shielded but not severed from the source. So he can't channel. He's just sitting there in a cage. Um, It's aligned with the books. He is led through the capital city of Andor, Camelin, in a cage, and the crowd just goes silent in the presence of who can channel, which sort of lends weight to what fear a false dragon yeah. or a dragon can inspire, false or not. And so him caged is on brand, and because he's a false dragon, I think he's separate. I think the man in the first episode was gentled on the spot. Oh, okay. And severed from the source. Okay. So when you're... Gentled, if you're a dude, or severed, stilled, if you're a woman, it means you can never touch the source again. You can sense that it's there, but it might as well be the sun and us, regular people. Mm. You can feel it. You can't embrace it. You can't channel it. All your abilities are gone that it had conferred, like the listening to the wind would have disappeared. Mm-hmm. And for an ASDI who had taken oaths, those O's sort of mess with your appearance. It gives you that ageless look that's described, which I feel they do a good job in the show of showing that. Um, So the aging slows. They get this look about them. But when they're severed, that goes away. They're no longer bound by the three O's, and um, their appearance changes slightly. All right, so that's where we leave off. Um, 
We hope that Moraine is going to get some help next episode and be healed. And we leave our party separated still. They are not together. Right. And when I was reading these books the first time way back when, I was like, how? What? But the Fellowship always stayed together until the very end. And the idea that it would be split and then come back together was so... It was the first time I had encountered it. Mm. So I'm excited for how that comes back together in the show. Um, and for as much as we gripe about the dark, gritty aspects of it, I thought there was a lot of really good moments in here with the characters, people being on brand, still having some of their token iconic moments. But yeah, it was a solid episode. All right. I think so too. It was a good episode to lead us into the middle of the season so we have i think there are eight total episodes this season and we have one per week until december 24th i think is the season finale so they are moving along very quickly by now we have covered several hundred pages at least of the original material and we who knows how far they're going to go. I've heard rumblings that they could dip into even the third book a little bit. So that's a lot of material to cover, but they're doing the pacing, I think, pretty correctly for a TV series. Yeah, I am also hoping that we get more murmurs and rumors of the Dark One is trying to blind the eye of the world. Mm. A very cryptic message that comes up several times that Moraine will understand what that means and where they need to go it hasn't happened yet so i'm curious and hopeful of what that's going to look like when we do get that and from how many different sources do we get the idea that the dark one is targeting the eye of the world so yeah so who was your woolhead of the week for this episode i am choosing dinah the innkeeper oh like, you don't lock yourself in with the person that you're trying to kidnap. Like, what are you thinking? And I am going to go with that same scene, but say Rand. Because Rand, you know that you're being chased. You just had Matt warn you not to scream at the top of your lungs off of a mountain. And you're allowing yourself to be separated from the only person you know and trust. And be shut into this room with a woman who, at the very least could take advantage of you as a traveler, like conk you over the head and steal everything, could have you locked up in a cage. Like, you already saw a dead dude in a cage on the way into this town. So, why are you so trusting? Yeah, he he should have been on red alert the entire time. Yeah, so uh, on both sides of that scene, it sounds like we are agreed some very dumb decisions by these two characters. Yeah, she did get some good development in the app. Like, I appreciated that she name-dropped some of the marvels of the world mm. to see an Ogier steading. She wanted to see the Stone of Terror. Um, and she had was using her story to sort of lull Rand in, and she was great up until the point that she revealed herself as... A dark fiend. Yeah, I really liked the character. It, they did really good development with her in the short amount of time that we knew her. Right. So it's too bad. I mean, R.I.P. Yes. R.I.P. Dino. 
All right. So everyone, if you want to join in the conversation, make sure to hit us up on Instagram at Two Rivers Two Takes. Let us know who your woolhead of the episode is, what you were surprised by, what you loved. And what you hope to see coming up in the next episode. I mean, we had these first three and what a luxury it is when they dump massive amounts of episodes in your lap and you can enjoy them and binge them. Now we have to wait week to week before we see what's happening next. So um, the next few days are going to be rough until we get that. It's going to be a long trip to Friday. It is. So until then, we hope to see you online and feel free to let us know what you feel, rate, review, subscribe to this podcast, and we'll chat soon. Take care. Bye.